I had never really considered the question. I'd never really given it much thought. Maybe it was just me. And I, I never even asked the question until I was reading a blog by a Christian author and writer, uh, speaker, uh, named John Bloom last week. And he posted the question, why was Judas carrying the money bag? I never really stopped to think about it. You ever wonder that? Why was Judas the one carrying the money bag? According to John, John chapter 12, verse 6, you don't have to turn there, but John spells it out. Judas was a thief, and that he carried the money bag, and John says he used to help himself to what was inside the money bag. Jesus had to have known this. I understand Jesus to be who he says he is. Jesus had to have known this. Jesus had to have been aware of this weakness within Judas, this temptation within him. So why would he allow Judas to be the one that carried the money bag? I mean, there were others. There was Nathaniel, who Jesus said, here, here is an Israelite in whom there is nothing false. That would have been a good guy to carry the money bag. There's, there's John, who was the... Jesus' best friend, the disciple who Jesus loved, sure, Jesus loved, surely he could have trusted him. There was even Matthew who had been a tax collector. Surely he knew something about accounting and he knew something about the money bag. But no, Jesus let Judas carry the money bag. And then I have to wonder, why was the tree in the garden so easily accessible? Why wasn't there a fence put up around that, a big barbed wire fence with razor wire around the top? Why is pornography so readily available to those who are tempted by that? Why is alcohol so easy to come by? I remember speaking with a friend of mine who had struggled with, with alcoholism for a long time, and he said, when I would come home from work at night, I would have to take the long way home because if I drove by convenience stores, I could hear the alcohol calling out to me. Why are all those things that that we struggle with? Why are those that struggle with rage and anger, why aren't they surrounded with fluffy bunnies and pillows all the time? Why are those things that we struggle with so easily accessible, those things that lead us away from God, why are they always right there at hand? And so the quote we're looking at today, did God really say, uh, the quote that we're looking at today is kind of like that. We're ever aware of the presence. We're ever aware of the, of the allure and the problem with the quote is it is in the Bible. Part of it is in the Bible. It is almost always misquoted. We hear money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible says it's not about money. It's about the love of money. But even before we get to that one verse that says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, we have to back up and look at the bigger context. Look at what Paul is saying. We're going to do that. 1 Timothy chapter 6 today, verses 3-10. through 10. If you're using those Bibles that we have for you there, it is page 982. I encourage you to use that. I encourage you to, to be in the Word as we, as we look at it together. 982. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul starts out saying, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up and conceited, and he understands nothing. 
He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels with words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Hear it again, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's not about money. Money is just a thing. Money is like a tool. Money is like a knife. You can either do something wonderful with it, you can create something beautiful with it, or you can do something evil with it. It's about the love of money. It's about the cravings. It's about the desire to be rich. Where does that desire take us? And and understand also, it's not wrong to be rich. That can be a tremendous blessing. But what is your desire? And how do we keep those desires in check? When you look at your desire, the things that you feel drawn to, there are a couple questions that I think this text calls us to ask ourselves. First of all, the first question is, what am I rooted to? What have I attached myself to? So often this this is misquoted. Money is the root of all evil. But you see the real quote. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So the love of money is a root. Does that mean there are other roots? Well, yeah, there probably are other roots. But... Paul's point is, every evil that you can think of, all kinds of evil, every evil that you can think of, everything that is contrary to the holiness of God can be traced to a love, to a desire for more. That makes it sound even more dangerous to me, doesn't it? It just makes it sound even more dangerous. I have a root today. I asked Jim Webb to find me a root. He went out and found me a root. And, uh, this is a, and don't worry, no trees were harmed in the making of this sermon. Um, but this is a tree root that Jim got me. It's not poison ivy, though, right? Okay, great. Um, so uh, this is a root. What does a root do? Well, for a tree, a root really does two things, right? Two things that, that a root does. First of all, a root anchors the tree to the ground, right? It provides stability and support and enables the tree to stand Firm. So if the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, then it anchors us to evil, doesn't it? It provides an anchor, a hold for evil. Those things that we desire, those things that we think about, those things that we want, the love of money becomes an anchor that holds us to those things. And it makes it harder for us to let go of evil, and it increases our desire for the wrong things. And then two, the other thing that a root does is it nourishes the tree, right? The root seeks out water, it seeks out nourishment, and it feeds the tree. And in that regard, the love of money 
feeds the evil. It, it feeds evil on ourselves. It, it, it lets the evil take our strength and take our nourishment and take who we are and what we are supposed to be about. Uh, so not only can we not get away from it because we are anchored to it, but it, it, because it's feeding itself off of us, because it's getting nourishment from us, it becomes stronger and stronger and harder to let go. Now you notice back in verse 9, Go back to verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That verse just gets worse and worse. Did you notice that? It becomes a snare. A snare is something that holds you to. It anchors you to a spot and traps you. Uh, Temptation becomes a snare and it leads to senseless and harmful desires that plunge us. It just gets worse and worse and stronger and stronger. The problem, though, isn't really about money. It doesn't even start with the love of money. The issue really begins back in verse 5 with this statement about the false teachers. Look back to verse 5. He's talking about the false teachers who through constant friction among people, uh, who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Now listen to this. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. You see, they have this idea in their head that godliness is a means of financial profit. You see, before it ever becomes rooted through the love of money, through some lust for more, it starts as an idea. So along with what have I rooted myself to, we need to consider the question, where is my imagination taking me? I'm going to stand over here. Where is my imagination taking me? What is it I am imagining? What is it that's on my mind? These false teachers are imagining that their godliness is a means of financial gain. Today is Father's Day. And I will always remember, I hope to always remember, the day that I told my father that I would like to be a preacher. I remember where we were when we had this conversation. I remember what we were doing, what he was doing. We had this conversation, and I said, I think I would like to be a preacher. And my father said, very encouraging in response to that, well, that sounds like a good idea. Uh, That Billy Graham guy makes a good living. And I thought, yeah, that's me, Dad. I'm going to be the next Billy Graham. I'm going to be right up there with the old graham cracker, you know, making a good living, doing pretty good for herself. See, the problem with desire, and Paul addresses it, it it starts in, in the imagination, and then from there he warns them, it's not about godliness and financial gain. Instead, verse 6, he says, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. (laughs) Will we? (laughs) Really? Will we really be content with just food and clothing? Or don't we want just a little bit more food and a little bit better clothing? See, the instructions all the way through is it's not about gain. It's not about the love of money. It's about contentment. Have you ever noticed on those days when you just kind of let your imagination wander. You just like to you, you sit there and just let your imagination go. Have you ever known, noticed that, that the thing that you never imagine, you never sit there and imagine, life is good just the way it is now. 
Life is perfect just the way it is. I don't need anything more. I don't need anything else. I have everything I want. Or does your imagination take you someplace else? If I just had a little more. Sometimes we think things like, you know, if I just had $50 a week more, if I only had, you know, I'm not asking for much, God. If I just had $50 a week more, think of the things I could do for you, Lord. And then we try to make it sound holy. God, if you only knew, like we're holding God for ransom here at this point. If you only knew the things I could do with just $50 a week more, then I could really serve you. So, you can't serve God with what you have right now? You can't give him your best right now with what you have now, with what you, uh, with what you can give him now, with where you are now. I guarantee you, if you can't do it now, $50 a week will not bring you closer to God. $50 a week will not bring you any closer. So if you're not serving him now, then who are you serving? If you're holding God and holding service for ransom for $50 a week more, then who are you serving now? One of the, the big problems with the love of money is there is no room for contentment. And contentment must be very important in this passage because you notice Paul uses the word contentment twice. And look at what he uses it in opposition to here. He uses the word contentment in opposition to words like cravings, quarrels, constant friction. Which would you prefer? Cravings, quarrels, and constant friction, or contentment? Which one would you rather have? And, and understand, contentment, contentment doesn't mean that we don't strive for more. Contentment doesn't mean that we don't try to better ourselves, to better our circumstances. That's complacence. You know, the difference between contentment and complacency, it's completely different. Contentment recognizes the sufficiency for the day because you have the presence of God. For the day. The problem really goes back to verse 3. These people are ruled by their imaginations. They're imagining, if I only had this, if I only had that, then I would be happy. Then I would be fulfilled. Then I would truly be able to do what God wants me to do. But look at where Paul begins in verse 3. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. It's not about imaginings, imaginations of, of godliness. It's about sound teaching. Not about imagination. It's about sound teaching. You know, if, if I built my sermons around the things that I imagine, they would be a lot more entertaining. <laughs> I guarantee you it would be a lot more entertaining if I just talked to you about the things that I can imagine, because I can imagine pretty big. I can imagine a lot of great stuff. And I'm afraid some preachers do that. They just preach based on imagination rather than the sound teaching. And verse 5 seems to say that. They, they have to depraved minds because their minds are not grounded in teaching, but instead they are simply imagining things, and they are deprived of the truth because, again, it's not about sound teaching. It's about what they can imagine. It's not their foundation. Their foundation is not in the truth. So it's not just about where my imagination 
is taking me, but what is the teaching that I have? What is my teaching holding me to? And ultimately, I think that's where this passage really takes us. How tightly am I holding to the call to godliness? If I'm holding on to godliness, if I am holding to godliness, then I I can't be rooted to money anymore, right? If I'm holding to godliness, I can't be rooted to money anymore. Jesus himself said that. You cannot serve two masters, for either you will love the one and hate the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. If I am fueling my faith with sound teaching, then I can't be driven by my imaginations. I can't be driven by those desires that creep their way in and get a hold of me. If I'm fueling my faith with sound teaching. This is not a call to reject money. It's not saying that that all wealth is bad. It's a call to look at your heart and say, what is your greatest desire? What is the greatest desire of your heart? Is it for more stuff or is it for more of God? It's really where this passage takes us. Is your desire for the presence of God greater than your love for more, than your love for money? The trap is that it what he says in verse 5, godliness with the love of money. Verse 5 says, godliness with the love of money will draw you away from godliness. But godliness with contentment, according to verse 6, is great gain. So does your desire for godliness motivate you more than your desire for financial gain? A couple of years ago, I spent a year researching the lottery, much to the amusement of some and much to the confusion of many. I spent a year looking at what is the draw of the lottery. Why do so many people spend so much money? You know, if the government came to you and said, we're going to raise your taxes by $18 a week. You would throw a fit. But if they put a machine at the convenience store, <laughs> you will spend $18 a week. That's the average, if I remember correctly, on the lottery. And so I was, I was trying to make sense of this draw because so many people are waiting for that big, payoff and they're they're spending money week after week on tickets thinking if I can just win if I could just win then everything would be good there was a study done a few years ago that compared lottery winners people who had big payoffs okay big payoffs lottery winners with amputees people who had lost an arm or a leg and they interviewed the lottery winners and the amputees a year after they had either won the lottery or a year after they had lost their arm or their leg, and they wanted to see who was happier. And you know what they found? They were about the same. People who had lost their arm or leg a year later were just as happy as those who had had a big windfall from the lottery. Both of them were just as happy, except in one area. Those daily mundane tasks that you and I take for granted because they're easy, stuff like putting your shoes on, tying your shoes, stuff like feeding yourself, stuff like taking yourself to the bathroom, those kind of things, amputees took more joy 
and found more happiness in the daily mundane things because every one of those daily mundane things was a victory, was something that they had overcome. Now, I am not encouraging you to go out and sh cut off your arm. Uh, that would be a bad thing, and I, I don't think that's where I should go with this. But what, what are you really looking for in, in happiness? What, is, what does Paul say? Paul says godliness with contentment is great gain. You see his point? You see what he's saying? And I, I would challenge some of you, if, if you're someone who goes out and spends a little bit of money or whatever you spend on the lottery tickets every week, I just want to ask you to do this. Don't do it this week. Don't do it this week. And I know you're going to sit there and go, but what if my numbers are the ones that come up this week? Don't do it this week and see if you're just as happy next week as you are this week. If you're just as happy next week as you are this week, is, is, then what is that doing for you? If, if it's not making you happy, if it's not drawing you closer to God, I'm not telling you not to do it. I'm just telling you, just try it. Just see what happens. Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. For Paul and for Timothy, what it comes down to is not about money, not even about imagination. Instead, Paul says to Timothy, look on ahead in verse, verse, uh, seven, excuse me, verses 11 and 12. It's not about money. It's not about imagination. But Paul says to Timothy, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Some of that should sound familiar to you, especially those words there like righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Don't they sound kind of like the fruit of the Spirit? Don't they sound kind of like the virtues that are to be growing in the Christian life and the things that we see more and more of? when we attach ourselves to God, when we seek godliness, when we put Him first in our lives. And you can't miss the contrast here. Verse 12, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Verse 12, take hold of eternal life. Verse 10, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Take hold of the eternal life. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Are you holding on to eternal life or is something else holding on to you? Now, I suppose the smart thing to do would have been to save offering time for after the sermon. That would have been smart because, you know, you're ready to give. Some of you probably would have put arms and legs on the plate, though. That would have been the smart thing to do. But the point isn't about your money. It's not about even about the love of money. It's about your desire for God. Can you be content with where God has you today? Can you be content with this day and what you have and what God has given you today? What have you surrendered? You know, that's a tough question, especially when there are things that we need and there are things that we, that we want and, and the economy's not all that great at times. 
what have you surrendered? But I would also ask you, what are you holding on to? Who are you holding on to? Have you looked at the promises that he has given you? Because when you look at his promises, you can't help but be content with what he has for you today, with where he has you right now. That's what he calls us to. He calls us to himself. He calls us to know that he is sufficient for the day, that he has everything that we need. Today we're going to surrender all. We're going to do that. It's it's an easy song to sing. It's a tough thing to do. And maybe it's tough because we look at our stuff and we think, oh, if I surrender all, that means I have to surrender this, I have to surrender that, and I can't get by without that. We surrender all. Look at what you're gaining. Look at who we are holding on to. Look at how perfect he is and how much he loves us. Let's stand together.